In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Drip co-founder Derek Reimer about what it's like building and launching his next startup level. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 399. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products, whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. I'm Derek. And we're going to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So we're this week, sir. Well, I am deep in the process right now of building out some mock-ups of my new app called Level to hopefully get some some more concrete things in front of some of my uh, early access list folks. That makes sense. And if folks are interested, just right from the top, level.app is the domain name. You have a really tight landing page. And if people, if you're listening to this and you want to see, this is maybe 400, 500 words of text, and it is on point. You have the headings, you can skim it. At the bottom is, is the FOMO, right? The reserve your handle today. You can claim a little slice of real estate on level.app. And, and then you have the social proof, right? 3,542 people who have reserved their handle, including me. And so if your name is Rob, I'm sorry, but I got level.app slash Rob. How's this, uh, how's the landing page working for you? It's working really well. And that, that is actually a live query now showing the the current count. And so, yeah, it it worked surprisingly well. I, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect when I first built that, but I figured that people would want to, like the scarcity play would be effective. And I had a few conversations with folks at MicroConf too about this, and I saw their eyes light up and they're like, ooh, yeah, make sure to let me know before you do that. So I was like, <laughs> That's when you know you're on like, something, This right? is a good sign. Like, yeah. um, you know, they can appreciate it from a from a marketing ploy. And then they're like this kind of instinct of like, by the way, I, I really, I really want to know when you do that so I can get mine. So, yep. Yep. And for, for those listening, if, if you don't know what level is, it's an alternative to real-time chat designed for the software development workflow. So I just pulled that right from your landing page. But it's it's essentially, I mean, ostensibly a competitor to Slack, but a much less interruptive experience, right? More asynchronous, not not the blinking red dot, or I guess it's not blinking in Slack, but the, that everything's synchronous by default, right, in Slack. And, and you're going for the opposite, in essence. And this stems from... Yeah, from from really my experience with Slack, my first time using Slack was with Drip when we were a team of like two or three, and it was not painful at all at that stage. But gradually, as our team size grew, it started to get a little bit, a little bit more cumbersome. And then I remember actually the first time I was in a quote unquote big Slack uh, team was in our building back in Fresno. And that was like a that was like an early warning that hmm I think this maybe doesn't scale so well as your team grows the the building chat was was full of just folks tossing around various pieces of information most of them not urgent but often pushed through with an at channel or an at here you know hey there's uh, there's some cookies in the in the kitchen and it's like did I really need to get pulled out of flow to hear that piece of information and so that was like an early sign that like wow slack seems kind of broken especially when there's a lot of people chatting back and forth and then that that experience was reinforced after we were acquired by lead pages and we kind of joined the broader company-wide chat and there was about 150 people in there and a really similar experience where you know a lot of well-intentioned people who weren't trying to interrupt each other but the tool just kind of failed us in essence and and made it really hard not to accidentally interrupt people's flow so level is really kind of a reaction to that problem and i just 
observed this over the course of years and I just couldn't get it out of my head. So now I'm building my take it a solution. Yep. And you, you wrote a manifesto a few months back and published it on your blog, DerekRimer.com. I see now you've, you've republished it at level.app slash manifesto. And in essence, you're talking about, I mean, you're kind of describing the pain points you've just just indicated, right, of the interruptive stuff in, in your story. Yeah. So that was the manifesto was kind of step one, actually, for introducing the idea to the world. And I I didn't really waste any time after, you know, kind of moving on from Drip. I think I published it on my last day at Drip is when it kind of soft launched. And then the next the following Monday, I really did a, a big push of the manifesto. So I was just, I mean, sort of itching to get this out into the world. Yeah, that that promotion was probably I think it worked really well because it sort of made a splash. It made a, a bold statement and I was able to gather quite a few email addresses off of that. I think it was maybe three to 400 within, uh, within the first couple of days. And so that kind of gave me a nice, a nice launching pad of, of folks to start engaging with. And, you know, obviously people sharing it around on social helped too. And so I think that was, that was a really effective strategy for kind of making the first intro to the world. Yeah. And I know you had kind of been noodling on it for a while, just in, you know, in the background in your head. And because we were faced with kind of the limitations of Slack every day, working, working on the drip team. And you, you left drip in, was it February of this year? Or was it March? I guess, is it like three or four months ago? Yeah, three or four months ago, the beginning of March. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the more important thing for someone who's listened to this two years from now. They don't care what month it is, right? Yeah, and, and you hit the ground running. And was the when you published the manifesto, I remember you wrote it up in a Google Doc and then a few of us, you had a couple of friends come in and, and edit and make suggestions and all that stuff. And then you published. And was it Twitter that gave you most of your signups? Or what do you remember being because I, I remember it didn't didn't go up in Hacker News, right? It got a few or something, but it didn't make it to the front page, which I was frankly surprised by. But what what was the how, how do you think you got those three or four hundred signups for someone else who's thinking about doing it? Yeah, it was actually it was predominantly Twitter. And I think I think that was effective, particularly for me, because this is a product that's marketed towards developers. And that's kind of the the premier place where where, you know, designer developer types hang out online. And so, yeah, I think that was where most of my strategy was focused was trying to get people to to retweet it, to like it, to share it. Um, I did kind of assemble a list of folks who you know, are kind of in my inner circle, friends of mine who also have a decent following on Twitter and kind of did manual reach out to those folks just to tell them like, hey, I'm going to be sharing this thing. If you wouldn't mind, you know, could you please tweet it out to your followers? And most people were really eager to, to help out. So I think that's where a lot of the lift came from. And then I did actually try running some Twitter ads that day. I didn't really tune the, the audience too much. I just let uh, Twitter kind of auto choose that by hitting the promote button. And that drove probably 30% of the impressions for it, but like zero activity. So I would say a, a oh, majority. Geez. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I put in like maybe a hundred dollars into that just to, just to see, is this going to help provide any additional lift? So I think a majority of it was really organic shares on social. I also emailed my, my own personal newsletter list, which was pretty small, just like a couple hundred folks on there at the time. And you know, that I think generated some shares off of that as well. Yeah, I could I could imagine that. I remember there were some comments. I think it was on Twitter, but my favorite comments are always the ones that 
completely miss the point of an article. Like I, I would spend eight hours writing something, right? And I know you spent a lot of time writing this. And then you have one sentence that has something that is debatably maybe factual or not, and someone like rips into that. And you're like, dude, that has nothing to do with the point. And there was one of these sentences you're talking about. Yeah, once we, you know, once we started using Slack, it was great. And, you know, this is not news now, but five years ago, it was pretty groundbreaking. And there was someone like, well, 12 years ago or 15 years ago, I was using IRC. And it's like, well, that that's not really the point. And it's like my experience versus you. Like, what are we even talking about, right? Did you did you have much of that or was it was it the minority? It was it was very much the minority, but yeah, that was I think it was on Reddit, actually. And maybe I maybe I sort of like attracted some of that flaming because I, I did post my own manifesto on there, which I know is a little bit, you know, against kind of the way you're supposed to use the service. But I was like, yeah, what the heck? I'll just post it in the developer subreddit or whatever. And yeah, some people took issue with the the timing of when chat was invented. And there, yeah, like the whole the whole notion of like arguing that this whole argument is invalid because I got the year wrong on when, you know, when it came to the forefront was just kind of laughable. Yeah, it, it is what it is. Luckily, that tends to be the minority thing, but it does always sidetrack. This is actually, that's actually one reason that I completely disabled comments on my blog. I got tired of those conversations going on and there were good comments and then just the ones that were irritating or ill-informed or just obviously looking to nitpick stuff, you know, and it was like, that's just not helpful. So that's, that's been my own personal journey with that. Cool. So you posted the manifesto, you got a few hundred emails and, and you're on the art of product podcast with Ben Orenstein, a mutual friend of ours. And you've been, you know, talking about your process through that. So I'm sure that that has helped get other developers interested in, in what you're up to and, and probably slowly built your list over time. Once you had that list, what were your next steps? Because I know that, you know, you and I had talked about this a while back and it was like, this is a, this is a very ambitious project and it's either going to be awesome or it's, you're just going to get smoked by Slack. You know, they're just going to stomp you or not even notice you and no one's going to switch because the high switching costs. So it's, it's one or the other and you're, you're fully aware of that up front. So what, what were your early steps of kind of trying to validate the idea a bit more, you know, than just positing, hey, I can build a better Slack. And it's like, okay, step two is, you know, when, what were you up to next? Yeah. So I was definitely leery of making the classic mistake of taking a little bit of uh, early indication that we're onto something and just kind of running with it and not talking to anybody, uh, which is, you know, a mistake that I've made before in the past and so many folks do. So I really wanted to err on the side of having too many conversations with people to try to, you know, suss out, is this, am I on the right track with this? And is this actually going to, you know, sell well in the market? And so I, I think it was within within a few weeks after launching the manifesto, I sent an email out to the list and I decided to email the entire list, which which looking back was probably probably should have started with a smaller slice just to gauge what the uh, what the response rate would be. But I basically emailed out and said, hey, thanks so much for signing up. I want to have a conversation with you and hear more about what your pain points have been with real time chat in the workplace. And at that at this point, just I'm not trying to propose any solution to you beyond what I'm kind of alluding to in the manifesto. And I really just want to hear what particularly about real-time chat isn't working for you enough that you gave me your email address. And so I sent this out and I sent a Calendly link with that so that people could book a 20-minute slot on my calendar. And I kind of reserved it to to afternoons only, thankfully, to, to reserve the mornings for productive time. And I think I got around 40 
people booking time on my calendar. So oh, that's, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that's both really good news and also like, oops, yeah. that's, what, were they 20 minutes each? So it's like yeah. or 30 minutes, yeah, 20 minutes each. Yep. I can't try to do that math quick. What was that? 16 hours? Something like that. Yeah. It was yeah, 15 it, hours or something. It turned yeah, out to be basically three, three and a half to four weeks of afternoons. Um, booked pretty solid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, that was, uh, at first I was like, oh boy, this is, this is a lot. But I think at the time it's early enough. I'm like, this is probably where my time is best spent is just, you know, talking to people and hearing in their words, what problems they're having. And that did help guide sort of the way I would thought about the product. It, I would say influenced where I thought the biggest emphasis should be on, like, I wasn't sure if the emphasis should be on you know, reducing interruptions or just organizing content better, or should it be focused around really optimizing for asynchronous? Like, where are the pain points actually? And so it helped clarify my thinking. I think, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a lot uh, that helped in the early days of Drip was just getting feedback from people and looking for patterns. Like, what are the things that we're hearing over and over again? And those are likely to be you know, things that we should be paying attention to. And so I did spot some of those themes and patterns. And so I think it was looking back, it was helpful to have a decent sample size. You know, if I'd only talked to 10 or 15 people, then that may not have been enough to spot patterns. So I think it was, it was good overall. Yeah. Yeah. I know it was a lot of time, but you, it seems like you were learning quite a bit as you were going. And at that time you didn't have any mock-ups, right? I mean, you really were just talking through how would, how would this sound or how would you use this or that kind of stuff? Yeah, it was mostly like I tried hard not to actually tip my hand on what I was thinking. I just wanted to hear like unbiased people's take on like, you know, if there's one thing I could change about Slack or, you know, I ask questions like, do you use Slack threads and what do you think about them? Uh, Or do you use search heavily in Slack? Just to kind of get an idea of like how much are people relying on the tool to be their source of their repository of historical information versus how much is just ephemeral conversations that get transferred into project management tools. So there's a lot of things I was just trying to like, you know, learn and, and suss out from people without tipping my hand too much on my my thoughts of a solution. Right. And, you know, in the in the back of your mind, obviously you you know that you need some kind of differentiation, like pretty strong differentiation from Slack, because you're everyone's going to immediately compare you to Slack. And when one thing you've chosen is to niche down to developers, right? And and you know that interruptions piss developers off. I mean, it just it, it breaks your flow. You and I have experienced this firsthand as our development team grew. I used to tell people snooze your Slack for two hours. You know, do not disturb it during this time. You know, just try to get focus so that we can continue to ship code at high velocity. So you have that, but there was there was one other thing that early on you you made a decision to do that that is potentially risky, but it's another differentiator. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So you and I had noodled this a little bit when I was just kind of in the idea stage, and and I think we were having drinks one day, and I was like, all right, I think I figured out the one thing that's going to really make level stand out let's open source it and which is sort of a and was it there was a record scratch vert, and i said did i yeah you yeah, sprayed your crickets. you spit your drink all over my yes. face <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you started pounding the table no uh it, it 
so there there are examples of this happening. You know, there's there's discourse, there's ghost, there's GitLab. So there are companies that are that are already kind of doing this. Not in the chat space though, right? Those are in other other spaces, but it's a model. Yeah, I will yeah. say there are other open source chat tools, but I don't think they're really making any kind of headway as a business. You know, there's a they're just kind of open source only. So kind of the the model of like open source the core code base, but then charge people for a hosted version of the service is basically the model that I'm going for. And the thinking behind it is that one, you know, this since this product is marketed towards developers, a lot of developers sort of appreciate when things are open source, when they can look at the source and see what's happening with their data and just sort of have that that transparency and and also be able to, you know, download it and stand up a cluster of servers and manage it themselves if they really want to do that. And I'm sort of banking on the fact that most companies that have sufficient budget to pay for a tool aren't going to want to go through the hassle of of managing their own servers and and patching them and keeping them up to date and all that kind of stuff. They're just going to want to pay me for for the hosted version. But if you don't have the budget or if you're bootstrapped and you're really scrappy, then, you know, by all means, download it, stand it up on your server. And when you're ready, you can transfer the data into the hosted service. Right. This was in essence around that, you know, you and I kept talking about how are you going to have a free plan? Because I think you need one, you know, or we both thought you need one because that's kind of par for the course in this space. And how are you going to do that as a bootstrapper and not get killed by hosting costs or not get killed by, you know, support and all that. And this is a way to do two things. It's pretty ingenious, you know, if, if it works. And it's like you said, developers or more, you know, tech oriented folks, this is in essence the free plan, you know, in addition to the benefit of it being open source, which most people like, and then they can pay you for the whatever the hosting and the support and you know as a, as a normal SaaS app. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not only the free plan, but it's also like kind of paves the way for for potentially offering on prem if I'm you know sort of optimizing for the ability to set up the entire service from the ground up easily with you know as opposed to just running a SaaS app where maybe you kind of cobble together your own hosting situation and it's not easily replicatable. I think building it in this way kind of paves the path for companies that are don't want to run a hosted service or trust another company to run hosted service for them. They can, you know, download it and run it inside their firewall too. Yeah. And that's really interesting because I don't, can you do that with Slack? No, I don't think so. Do you know, there's no on-prem version as far as I know. So that, that could be an interesting, interesting enterprise play. I know that wouldn't necessarily be the market you go after first, but if you get traction, you get name brand and people are like, Hey, not only is this open source, which big companies tend to, they either hate it or love it, but if they understand it, they love it. And then, you know, you can, you're, like you said, you can do the, the on-prem play and that's, those are super expensive, right? That would be a really nice high-end revenue source for you if, if you're willing to, to put up with <laughs> the headaches of enterprise. <laughs> right. That would probably be down the line where I have traction and a team and I could kind of establish a team to kind of run that end without me having to do all the sales and all that kind of stuff. Totally. Yeah. And so after you got all of, of kind of the information from those Skype calls, I know you and I then met, I know you did a bunch of thinking on your own for a couple of weeks, and then you were at a point and you said, you know what, I have thoughts, it's not ready to go into mockups yet. You know, it's not, I'm not ready to build a UI, I have a bunch of, of ideas about different message types and how I would structure these, let's do a whiteboard session. And so you and I met at, at the local library, actually, in a nice little room. And you want to talk, talk about that kind of the value, I think the value of that or, or what, that, what that felt like and just the point of doing that. 
Yeah. So I think a lot of times there are these key points when you're designing products where it's like there's a lot of information scattered about and kind of coalescing that information into something actually tangible is it's hard to hold that all in one person's head, I feel like. And, you know, I tried I tried doing a little bit of solo whiteboarding and I jotted down in a notebook and I probably could have arrived at similar conclusions, but I think it would have taken a lot longer and probably probably wouldn't have been quite as crisp and clear. So we whiteboarded for probably hour and a half, two hours. And I think we came away with some really concrete takeaways. And it kind of started with like, okay, I have all these types of messages that people send in Slack. You know, there's there's water cooler type chat. There's people showing showing their work. There's people announcing things to their team. There's, you know, there's synchronous discussions maybe around a, an incident or something happening in production where we're needing to go back and forth quickly. And there's like people requesting something from someone else or maybe things blocking their work. And so I had like this long list of things and I was like, okay, I need to kind of build up like What's similar about these? What's different? How will the application know what type of message? Do I need to ask the user to tell the app what type of message this is? Or can we infer it? And then how does this translate into priority and notifications? And so it was sort of like a really central piece of the application. And I felt like, you know, I couldn't just start designing UI because it all kind of hinges on how each of these types of messages is treated. And so... I think this was a really good candidate for whiteboarding. And and yeah, I, I felt kind of like we reignited some of the magic from the drip days, which was it was really fun too and, and motivating. So like I would say like even if people out there are if you're a solo founder, I think it it can be really valuable to find a friend that you have good rapport with and can, you know, kind of brainstorm with and bounce ideas off of and just get their kind of two brains thinking about the problem. It can it can often lead to a really great uh, result in the end. Yeah, I was, I don't know, concerned is probably not the right word, but going into it, I was like, "Uh oh, Derek's been thinking about this for months and I'm way out of that whole process. And are we going to be able to, like you said, kind of rekindle the old magic? Because when on Drip, I mean, we used to just whiteboard all the time and like came up with really good stuff, I thought. I mean, we just, I used to say like, yeah, like the, with the two of us in a room, it's like 10 times better, you know, or like we catch all the edge cases. And it's like you said, two people holding the whole thing in the collective heads rather than one person trying to do it. There's always a back and forth. There's a, your sanity checking. I mean, there's just the collaboration. It's, it's just night and day. If you're standing in front of a whiteboard on your own, I think you and I really found how different that could be when we started collaborating right on drip. Yeah. Cause you, you, you're thinking about stuff and you kind of reach, you reach these points where like, um, my train of thought is hits a dead end. And if you don't have someone there to kind of either pivot it or just pick up where you left off, then it can just be a really frustrating process. And, you, you know, you feel like you're slogging through through mud and just having a, a pair there to help keep things moving. And even if we're, I mean, there were times when you would sit there and just kind of stare off into space for a minute or two. And that's okay too, you know, but I think it, it was just a, yeah, it was a really fun exercise. Yeah, I agree. Being comfortable with silence too. We've talked about this when I came on your podcast is like the ability, if, if you are going to whiteboard with someone, one or two people, although we've, I don't know that we've ever found a third who is is as in our own heads as we are, you know, or as in, in the flow. We certainly had some good collaborators at Drip, but you and I can sit there for five minutes with complete silence and not feel weird. And I think that's a big thing is you let the other person 
think and you're thinking as well. And that's that's the other thing I think with whiteboarding is oftentimes if I try to do it on my own, I'll get to a point and I just get stuck. And it's like, I just can't get past this. And that's when you will step in and be like, well, what if we think about this? And it's like, oh, and now you got us past it and we're still in the flow. And then we could finish the whole, you know, whole rest of the hour, but I would have stopped there and just got, got hung up on it for a day, potentially, you know? So I think that's a good point where you're like, we got in that room and we did, it, you could have gotten there eventually, but it may have taken you weeks, you know, and it was 90 minutes or whatever for us. So cool. So that nailed down. And that was super fun, by the way, I came out of that feeling great. Yeah. So you came out of that then with kind of a mental model of like message types and, and not quite UI. I know we threw UI ideas around. We never sketched anything, but it was always, it was kind of hand wavy and talking as we're like, this alert should do this in this flow. And then did you, did you go straight from there into mock-ups or what was your next step? I know there was a vacation in there as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did take a little, took a little vacation, but when I came back, I started, so I, I've been having this, this feeling of like a little bit of guilt <laughs> as a product person that I should be getting some ideas, more concrete ideas in front of users to get feedback, sort of what I alluded to at the top of the show. And so I did try to take a stab at building some mockups and I've been working on them for a little while now. It's taking a lot longer than I expected. And I think, I think part of that is that, you know, we had some, we had some concrete, you know, ideas formed from the whiteboarding session, but like we said, they're not, they were not actual like envisioning of where the pixels will sit and how, how the product will actually form together. Like it was still a pretty, a pretty fuzzy vision of it. And so I, I found that like, it felt like I had it a lot more worked out in my head than I actually did when I started to lay out UI elements. And I think that's kind of, that's probably true of any idea where, where it's like easy to sort of picture this thing that's not actually real. And once you try to make it concrete, it's, it's like, oh, there's actually a lot here to still think through and work through. And I think perhaps actually we could whiteboard on this again and, and maybe burst through another kind of wall, you know, or I just need to keep kind of slogging through it and, and returning back to it every so often and kind of incrementally building it out. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So, well, so it sounds like you hit not a roadblock necessarily, but it's, it's, a bit harder, a bit more challenging than you thought it would be. And I guess mockups, mockups are often like that, right? When you're, cause you're tr almost trying to invent something new and you got it, you have to thread a needle because you can't be Slack, but you can't be email. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I've kind of like, like this, it's all centering that most of the difficulty I'm having is centering around this, this inbox in level, right? And that's one of the core pieces of the product is that, and it's something that's really missing from Slack, is that I want to have one place where I can come to and quickly see in priority order all the things that need my attention. And then I can step away for six hours, go into deep focus mode, come back and feel confident that everything I need to see with relative urgency is, is all laid out for me just as I want it. And once you start kind of exploring like, well, what happens when there's 100 messages posted in this group and 50 in this group? And like, how does that, how does the inbox mutate over time so that things don't become overwhelming and it doesn't devolve into kind of the email inbox mess that so many people experience, you know? And how can I actually make good on the promise that I am threading the needle well between email and chat? And I think there's actually, I mean, I think once I overcome this, it's going to be hopefully something really good and, and is really going to resonate with people. But until then, I don't feel like I can just start showing these theoretical mock-ups where I just kind of hand wavy say like, oh, and it'll be always manageable for you. You know, like I want to give some proof that I'm actually onto something, some framework or some methodology for categorizing and organizing these messages. 
Right, because the the challenge when you're building something new is to validate your most risky hypotheses, the, the ones that are most likely to fail, where the risk is. And so typically, it's not the the code itself, right? Unless you're going to build, you know, I'm going to build an AI engine to predict stocks. Well, it's like, all right, so that's your first thing. Can you even do that, right? But here, you know that you can write the code to make messages go in and out of a queue and, you know, come out of the things. So th there's two risks left that I see. One is, can you design a UI that is novel enough and, and does thread that needle, you know, between the two and is is like, you know, 3x better or 5x better than the other experience for a certain group of people. And then the last risk will be, you know, will people pay for it, right? And, and you've, you've validated that somewhat through building your email list and having these in-person conversations. I'm guessing once you have mock-ups or at some point, you'll probably ask for whether it's verbal commitments or, you know, you may take money up front. And I know I, I don't think you've decided on, on when you'll do that, but so that is a big issue, like building the mockups and figuring out, you know, how is this flow going to work and is this novel enough and, and iterating on it until it is. Yeah, I think this is arguably one of the most important pieces to work out, you know, because without this, the whole product kind of the whole promise falls down. You know, it's not it's like it's one thing to just introduce threads, for example. And, you know, Slack has kind of arguably poorly implemented threads. So if I just implemented something that was just like, oh, everything's a thread. That's great, but that still doesn't solve the problem of not being a complete catastrophe when you step away from it for a long time. And so this is, you know, it's one of the critical moments, I would say. Indeed. And so I want to I want to switch it up a little bit. You know, we've talked a lot about the specifics of level and and your kind of process of validating it and, and getting the design going. I'm curious, you know, this is in essence kind of the third app or third startup really that, that you're launching. I know that you launched a couple that kind of came and went pretty quickly, but then you had obviously Drip with me and you did CodeTree, CodeTree.com, which is kind of project management that sits on top of GitHub issues. And you did that on the side. You sold that while we were actually right around the time that we sold Drip. You sold that, if I recall. I sold that. We sold Drip and I sold my house, house. when we moved. So yeah. I had three big sales. That was yeah. crazy. What kind a crazy mass time. liquidation. I know. So, <laughs> yeah. so this really is, for all intents, like the third, kind of the th your third act here. I'm curious if you think it's easier this time around. Is it harder? Is there more pressure? Do you feel like you know what you're doing? But, you know, like what, talk me through like the emotional side or the mental side of, of where you're at with it. Yeah, I think it's it's unique in that with Drip, I was I started out as a contractor and so I was gathering a paycheck and and then you know I went full time on it and we had Hittail sort of bankrolling our efforts a bit. So like there was it was a self-funded endeavor that had that was throwing off enough money for at least a decent paycheck so I could live. <laughs> and then CodeTree was a side side thing. So that was nights and weekends. I was basically sacrificing my free time, but in exchange, it wasn't really costing me actual money. And now this is the first time that I'm really like as a, as an adult going off and saying like, I'm not going to earn any salary or revenue for the whole time that I'm building this thing, or at least until I launch it, you know? So I think that that introduces in itself a bit of pressure that I'm trying to just like always mentally overcome that obviously selling drip and code tree helped 
give me a little bit of runway so that I can afford to do this. And that's arguably the whole reason why we do this is so that we can afford to, to work on the things we want to work on. So, but, but I've had to do some things like set aside my living expenses for the next year and sort of figure out loosely what my budget's going to look like and then make transfers from this account to my checking account and just say like, I'm paying myself for the next year and I'm not allowed to think about, think about money and, and, or stress about it. And so it's sort of been working on, it's a work in progress, but working on trying to do things like that to keep myself sane and not get too, too stressed out. Yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, I find it funny. You're like, this is the first time as an adult because you were an adult the whole time, but you weren't, you know, now you're married, you have real expenses, you know, you live in a city with the, the cost of living is not super high, but it's, you know, Minneapolis is, is definitely, it's akin to a, a California city that's not LA or San Francisco, right? It's like, it was similar to Fresno, which is, you know, not, not super cheap. And so, yeah, it's not like you can, it's not like you're going to live on two grand a month here. You know, it's like, most people's rent, depending on how you live and all and where you live, it's 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 a non-trivial sum. So I'm glad you did that. I know that you were stressed early on, you know, about kind of burning some cash. Um, and as you said, the exits, the two exits you have, you know, have uh, have helped bolster that. But I think your wife also distinctly gave you permission, huh? She kind of forced you. She did. Yeah. yeah. She's like, you need yeah. to do this. this. You earned this. If I was that the phrasing, there was something like that. Like, that's why you did these other ones. Exactly. Like, yeah, like don't, this is not the time now to say like, oh, I don't know, maybe I should keep a job and do this nights and weekends. And she's like, no, no, no. This is the whole reason why you sell companies. And, and I think she's, has a lot of wisdom in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Well, cool, sir. Thanks for uh, joining me today while Mike is out of town filling in our 399th episode. Oh my gosh, you're one off from 400. Isn't that crazy? We got to wow. figure something out to do that's like <laughs> a big bang. Not just Mike and I talking about five ways to market <laughs> yeah. or something. Like, can we do yeah. something different? Yeah. We are the worst at that. We've looked back and it's like, I, I think 300, we may, may have just done a normal episode. And it's like, that's kind of a, that's kind of a shame. Yeah. Yeah. You got to take these milestones and, and squeeze some juice out of them. Yep. Yep. Celebrate them a bit. Yep. Cool, sir. Well, if folks want to keep up with you, they can hit level.app yep. and then derekreimer.com. That's where you, you blog now and again about your experience and you're building level for developers out there. You're building it in Elixir. Yep. Is that right? And Phoenix? Elixir, Phoenix is the web framework. The web in, framework. In Elixir. Yep, kind of the rails of, of Elixir. And, and then, yeah, GraphQL. GraphQL is the API layer. And then Elm on the front end, so that Elm kind of translates into JavaScript. So it's a very shiny <laughs> new tech stack for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm having a lot of fun building in it. And well, I think yeah, for most people. Yeah, yeah, for most people. It's it's kind of, I mean, it's it's fairly proven technology, but still on the newer side. And so... And I feel it's it's really exciting. It's it's predominantly centered around functional programming languages. Elixir and Elm are both functional, so it's a bit different from what I've been doing. I've been writing Ruby for the past you know eight years, but yeah, having a lot of fun for it. And I'm hoping that the level code base can be a good example of like a full scale SaaS application that's kind of out there in the world for for people to uh, reference. Yeah, it seems to be. I was taking you know I don't obviously don't know any of the languages you're using, but you have such a good way of uh, organizing your code bases, and your README was super clean. And I was like, huh, if I if I had a few extra hours this week, I would just run these commands and try to see if I get this thing running. <laughs> you know, it's kind of fun. So oh, you can do it. Yeah, it's good to see it and get up there. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
I think that wraps us up for today. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690. Email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.